Now, one of the things that I have discussed before here, and we chuckle at together, is that the world has violently renounced the church. That the world really doesn't want anything to do with the God, with the Bible, with the church as an institution. But in so doing, they have put themselves out there in chaotic circumstances and in chaotic beliefs. And it's always funny to watch how every now and then the world will reinvent a biblical wheel, if you know what I mean. They'll realize that they need something that they're missing and they'll go back and have some brilliant discovery that they left behind when they got rid of the Bible and the church. I made a list of a few of these and we've talked about these before, but it just makes us chuckle and remember that the Lord is wiser than we are. The world is, is now discovering that after decades of the free love and free sex experiment are discovering that that's actually degrading and dangerous to those involved and we really ought to have more strict rules about consent and things like that. The world has just now discovered this. Number two, the world has discovered that divorce is actually hard on children and it's actually very difficult for families that have been divorced to move past that without any long-term damage. The world has just now discovered this. Number three, I read this in a book not long ago, that faith is an important part of character transformation. I read a book that was talking about breaking personal habits and they looked at churches and they said, what makes churches so effective in breaking habits is this element of faith, that they have a common goal and a common belief. So as long as you have a faith in something, really doesn't matter what it is, it'll help you accomplish the same goals rather than concluding maybe it's something that they believe in that matters, not just the fact that they believe. But I think it's really funny that the world is, is rediscovering spirituality after kicking it out the door. Number four, the world is finally discovering, after all this time, that men and women are actually pretty different, and they look for different things in relationships, and different things in marriage. Now, there are those that want to argue about that, but the world is kind of coming to the conclusion, wait a minute, I don't think that she and he are exactly the same. Fancy that. Number five, the world has discovered very recently that when you believe in evolution as the only explanation for existence, it's actually a pretty miserable way to live. And it leads you to being depressed and existentially worried and nervous and anxious all the time. Amazing. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Number six, the world discovered not long ago, and I'm glad they did because the church had no idea about this, that love is the highest of all virtues. All you need is love, the world said. Now, we had never heard that before. The Bible never talked about that, did it? Number seven, that you need a, a group of people around you where you can have a healthy expression of your thoughts and emotions because if you don't do that, you'll kind of be isolated and alone and it's not good for you. I love seeing these discoveries that they, they get books published, they go on tours, they have headlines in the newspaper, but all these things that the Bible has told us and we've been believing and doing for a very long time. And you almost have to laugh at it. And we're going to focus on that last one today, the importance of community. Have you noticed that the world has picked up on that theme of the importance of having a community? You've got to have a family. You've got to have a tribe. You've got to have a team. You've got to have a club, something that if you're going to be by yourself, you're not going to be a well-adjusted, happy, moral person. And the world has heralded this as a new discovery that no one has ever thought of before. But it should be no surprise to us to learn all that because the Lord told us in the Bible, to gather together. The church is the Greek word ekklesia. It means the gathering. It means the assembly of the brothers. And in Hebrews 10, 25, the writer told us, don't forsake gathering together. Don't, don't go out and try and do this on your own because it's not going to work for you. The Bible compares the church to a flock of sheep, doesn't it? Flocks stick together. There's no lone sheep. You might have a lone wolf or like a lone grizzly bear, but there's no lone sheep that terrorizes the countryside, is there? Sheep stick together. And that's what the church is. The church exists to be a brotherhood of believers. It's a family of disciples that meet together to learn how to live and then to help each other live it out. That phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. God gave us a village. It's called the church. And when the church comes together, we help each other. And I think it's really funny that the world is out there trying to recreate the church. Although they don't know it yet. We're blessed to be part of God's family. That we're living together for a common goal. And all those things the world says is so hard to find, God has already given us right here. 
And we're going to see today how Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they instructed the Thessalonians to live in fellowship together. How to do that. He's going to talk about how they should treat their leaders. He's going to talk about how to treat one another. And he's even going to mention at the end a little bit about their attitude towards those who are outside the church. So it's exciting to me when the world is panicked about something and I come to God's word and God's like, I already took care of that. I foresaw that. I knew what you were going to need and I have already given it to you. So I hope we come away today with a, with a new joy and a new gratitude for the church that God has given to us. Let's read, first of all, these first two verses, 12 and 13, where the writers say, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. All right. So we went through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2, and 3, which was encouragement. It was making the connection again with the church and the apostles. And then in chapter 4, we began the instructive portion of the book. And he talked about a few things. And the last thing we looked at over the three weeks was he was talking about the rapture, the return of the Lord. But now that that section is over, in verse 12, he's going to return to moral instruction and less doctrinal instruction. It's important for us to note just because Paul was telling the church to do these things does not mean that the church was struggling with these things. Sometimes we can get in trouble because we'll say, well, Paul told them to love each other. They must not have been loving each other. That's not necessarily true. This means that Paul's like, hey, I don't care if you are loving each other. You need to remember and keep loving each other. The Thessalonian church actually seemed to have a lot of, a lot of good, a lot of things together. Second Thessalonians will be a little bit different. But these are general lessons that will apply to every church, including our church. So I don't think any of the things that we're going to discuss today are problems that we need to fix. They're just good things for us to remember. And I love the way that these verses are set up because Paul writes with these really long sentences. Have you noticed that? A lot of times even the English punctuation will shorten the sentences that he has. Maybe some English teacher was afraid of the run-on sentences that God inspired in the word. But it helps us understand, and this is sort of a preview of what our inductive Bible study class will be like, about how to break down what he said and to know what it means. So we're going to do some of that today. He says in verses 12 and 13, he asks them to do two things. We ask you, we ask you to what? To respect and to esteem those who are leaders over you. So this first section is about how we are to treat the leaders that God has put up in the church. So he says, we ask you, and then there's two things that he asks, to respect and esteem. And both of those things have long descriptions, but it's, it's really, you can see, communicating the same thing. So we're going to break each one of those things down in turn. And this is how you can understand what Paul was saying. Sometimes you've got to take the time to slow down and see where the structure of the sentence is. When I was in seminary, they made us diagram entire books of the Bible. Remember sentence diagrams? That was, that was awful. I, I was the worst at that. And it was hurting my grade, so I went off and I took all this extra time and bought books on sentence diagramming. Can you believe that? And until eventually I got pretty good at it, and then the next semester I was the one teaching the class how to do that. And I don't know how that happened, but anyway, I'm not going to make you guys do that. But that, that kind of breakdown is important, so that way we know what, what he's trying to communicate. So he tells them first to respect. We ask you to respect the leaders in the church. That word for respect, it's the Greek word ido. It just means to see to see the leaders who are above you. So to recognize who they are, to see them as the leaders that God has placed over you, to recognize that authority and to acknowledge it. I think we can understand that metaphor pretty well. He's not clear from this book or from the book of Acts what kind of leadership structure Paul had set up in the church in Thessalonica. We know that they had to leave quickly and that Timothy went back. I'm sure that was part of his job. But later on, we know that Paul would make it a priority to appoint elders in every city. And 1 Timothy and Titus spent a long time describing the kind of men that should be the elders. We know from Acts chapter 20 that Paul took men named Aristarchus and Secondus with him to Jerusalem to deliver that gift to the churches. So it's possible that he's talking about Aristarchus and Secondus here. But maybe not. Maybe they could spare them because they were not in leadership. We don't know. But the church is told, first of all, to see them, whoever they were, to recognize them, to recognize and to see that God put them there, which, of course, implies respect them. I think it's a good translation. To respect their authority. And this is something that we see throughout the Bible, that 
The Lord establishes authority and hierarchy in the relationships between people and that God expects us to obey and submit to that authority. The clearest example of this, I think, is in 1 Samuel 24. This is when David has been fleeing from Saul. Saul is out to get him. He's going to kill him, hunting him down into the desert. And then David is hiding in a cave and Saul comes into the cave, doesn't know he's in there. And David's men say, there's Saul. You can kill him right now. Take the throne. All your problems will be over. And David went up and he cut a piece of the robe off of Saul's cloak or coat. And he says that David's heart smote him for that because he's like, why am, I, why am I disrespecting this guy? Why am I trying to make him afraid? What am I doing? I'm showing off for my merry men, you know, in the cave. But he said in verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. There was another time where Saul was in in the camp and David snuck in and he had the opportunity to skewer Saul while he was sleeping. And he says, nope, I'm not going to do that because this is the Lord's anointed one. Even though David was also anointed of the Lord, even though David knew he would one day replace Saul, and even though Saul was certainly not acting like an anointed one of God, David said, this is somebody that God gave authority to. I'm not going to be the one to take it away from him. Now, we are the sons and daughters of the revolution. We don't like that very much. But it's important for us to know. Now, this teaching could be taken to tyrannical extremes, right? There are pastors that will stand up and they want to know every detail of your life and don't you dare go out to lunch without asking my permission and all kinds of craziness. We're not going to do any of that. But we also should not lose the biblical principle that God has established leaders in his church. And he says to recognize that, to see that and respect that, like David did. And Paul explains here what these leaders are, what they do. Who should we respect in the church? He gives us three things. Those who labor, those who are over you, and those who admonish. So do you see how there's this nested explanation of what we're talking about here? This is why we break down the sentences this way. So those who labor, those who are over you, and those who admonish you should be respected. I actually want to start with that second one. Because it's important to have at the beginning here. To understand that God has set men over us in the church. That he has set up authority. I'm going to say this because we should all know this. He's not talking about in terms of salvation. That those men that God has put in authority over you, they have a leg up on salvation. And they're, they're already into heaven and you better treat them nice or they might not let you into heaven. That's obviously not true. We also believe in the priesthood of all believers. We've read the verses that John writes that you don't need anybody to teach you because the Holy Spirit is your teacher. So this is not some, what we'd say, ontological thing. It's not as if they're up here and you're down here like the Hindu caste system or anything like that. But it's a matter of authority. It's a matter of structure and role. Very similar to marriage, that the husband is the leader of the family and the wife is in submission. That doesn't mean that the husband is better than the wife. That means that she's in submission. We see this most prominently in the Trinity, don't we? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one in essence, but they are different in the roles that they play. Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, was in submission to his Father. He was also in submission to the Holy Spirit. But then when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. And God will give all authority to the Son, and then the Son will give it back. Their role that they play, their place in the structure, does not affect who they are. And the same thing is true for us. We need to know that. But we do see that there is a structure in God's church. From the beginning of the book of Acts, we see that there were the apostles, the twelve, and then they would add elders and others like James who would step up and be pillars in the church. Everywhere they went, there were leaders and elders and pastors. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, God has given the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Peter and Paul and Romans and other places will talk about that there is a gift of leadership that God has given to some in the church. It is clear that there are those who are over others in the church. Now, we have two problems with this. Number one, as I said, we are a democratic culture. That we have leaders who are over us, but they ultimately report to us, don't they? We don't like what they do. We can vote them out. We can say, I don't want you to be my leader anymore. And that's why we squabble so much, because we're always trying to fight and see who can vote the most, right? So the idea of somebody having authority over us because God said so, we kind of get uncomfortable with that, don't we? We're also a capitalist society, which means if somebody wants something from us, like, 
You don't just get to demand it from me. I want to be wooed. I want to see commercials. I want to see discounts. I want sales. I want to make sure that your product is better than his product. And then maybe I will deign to give you my money and take it home with me. You come to the church and the Lord says, this is the man that I have placed over you. Like, well, we'll see about that. God's like, no way. That doesn't work here. Now, if we were over in some other culture, we'd have other issues with this. But these are our issues. And these are the ones that we've got to look at. They make it difficult for us to accept the authority of other people in the church. It's like, well, you, you don't just get to decide. I want to have a say. It's like, why do you think you should have a say? Well, we believe in the power of the people. Okay, that's very, that's very good. You paid attention in civics class. But what about the church, right? This church is great, but they're not really doing anything for me. What do you mean they're not doing anything for you? Well, what, what am I gaining from this here? And it's like, well, what is it about you gaining anything? It's God's church. And these are things that are so in there that it's hard for us to get away from them sometimes. Many times, if we don't like something that our leaders are doing, we'd rather just leave. I don't have to stay here. Well, you're right. There's no law requiring you to stay here. Or we want to scheme. It's like, we'll, we'll get our way, but we can't just come out and say it because that would be unseemly. So we'll kind of do these little backdoor deals. And, you know, a few of us have been talking, Pastor, and uh, we've come to the conclusion that, oh, you know, you, you've heard this before. Or just want to fight. It's like, I know you're in charge, but if I can bully you into getting what I want, then, hey, you're technically the leader, but I'm still getting my way. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You know that I'm going to have to answer for you when I get to heaven? That's what the Bible says. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Think about that. When you stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, when the Lord is evaluating the wood, hay, and stubble, and the gold, jewels, and precious stones, the pastor is going to be there. And the Lord's going to say, did they, did they walk with me? And did they obey? Did they submit? And did they do all that? He says, let them do this with joy. The pastor, oh yes, they were so wonderful. Lord, they were so great. Let me tell you story after story of all that they did. And the Lord will say, well, that, you must have been pretty great. But he says also, let it not be with groaning. You don't want it to be, all right, next on the list, and I'm not going to say anybody's name, I'm not even going to tease, all right? But up, up they come. You don't want your pastor to go, oh, this guy. Lord says, now, tell me about this man. Well, I'll tell you about this man. Yeah, he was there, but it was always a challenge. It was a struggle. He never wanted to listen. He never wanted anybody to tell him anything different, and, and he just pushed people around, and God's going to say, well, I put him over you. Why didn't you listen to him? Well, but I'm a Christian too. He goes, yeah, but I put him over you and the word told you to listen. When you come into this church or any other, wherever you are worshiping, you ought to recognize the authority of the pastor and others that are put in places of leadership because this is not just an efficiency thing. This is not just, well, he's a good leader, so I'll follow him. I like where he's taken this church. It's a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual matter. So, well, he was a bad leader, so I decided to make things happen on my own. The Lord says, this is a spiritual thing. He says that you ought to respect them because they are over you. So that's number two, that they are over you. It's important for us to understand this, that this is biblical. This is what the Bible says. And if we say that we believe the Bible, every word in it, every jot, every tittle, then we've got to recognize what this says. They are over you. But let's go back to the first one there, because we did number two, and now we're going back to number one. The qualities of the people we respect. He says, those who labor among you. This is important. To be a leader in the church, and now if you have any designs or ideas of having any kind of position or leadership in the church, hear me on this. To be a leader in the church is not just to have a position, but to be a servant. That word minister, we don't really use that in our our government, but in England and places like that, the prime minister or the minister of finance or whatever it is. The servant. It comes from the Greek word that means to serve. So Jesus said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be the servant of all. It's hard work to be a servant of the Lord, to lead in God's church. We've read this several times in this book, haven't we? Where Paul and Silvanus and Timothy refer to the labor that they worked out while they were in Thessalonica. And they set a good example for us. If you want to look back in chapter 2, verse 9, he said, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. 
We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's the example. To be a leader in the church is to be a hard worker for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of the people that you're leading. Now, throughout history, there have been guys like Diotrephes. 3 John verse 9 talks about a guy named Diotrephes. John had been sending letters to the church, the Apostle John, and Diotrephes refused to let them be read in the church because he wanted to be in charge. So Diotrephes, who always loves to have the preeminence among them. He was a bully. He was a, maybe he called himself a strong leader, but in reality, he was a tyrant. And John the Apostle, the son of thunder, said, when I, when I come up there in person, I'll deal with him. I don't know if I'd want John to say that about me. There are those who just want to be in charge. They like the idea of having pastor before their name, like the, like the Pharisees, right? They love the greetings in the synagogue. Oh, rabbi. Oh, thank you. Yes, rabbi. Yeah. Or they love having terms like reverend in front of their name. They love people that give them that automatic respect. Less so these days, but there are those that think they ought to have that. Or maybe they bought their seat in the church. This doesn't happen so much anymore, but it used to happen all the time where a king or a noble or somebody would buy their son a position in the church to be a bishop or an archbishop or whatever, because it would increase that king's authority over the land he was in. Big, big problem. The Reformation is one of the things that, that handled that. Or others, they see, I want to be a pastor because it's a one-day job. It's one day a week. I, I spend about an hour, hour and a half on Sunday. Then I can spend the rest of the week golfing and fishing and watching football and sleeping in late. And then I you know, show up on Sunday, do my one hour and collect the money. Well, first of all, that is a very bad representation of what it means to be a pastor. If there is a guy that does the one-day job, he's probably not very popular, I would imagine. But I found the opposite to be the case. To do this job right requires immense quantities of time. You don't just get to do one day. You want to try to do it in one day, you're going to need like 60 hours in that day in order to get it done. And in fact, most pastors don't struggle with the laziness side, although there are there, there are a lot of guys that struggle to take it easy every once in a while, to take their Sabbath day, to love their family and not neglect their children in the service of the church. That's, that's what I struggle with. I, I don't have the laziness problem. I have the, take a break, Tyler. I, I love getting texts from my wife at like three in the morning when I'm studying that just say, come to bed. <laughs> so, well, I'm working. I got to get this done. And to come to bed. That's why God gives us family, and that's why the God, God gives us the church. But it's, it's a labor to serve the church and to be a good leader. It's time-consuming to prepare these teachings. I remember there was a guy in my, the church I served at previously who was the head of a food bank in town, and his strategy to get money would be to come to churches and berate them and make them feel really guilty for not doing X, Y, and Z so that he could get the money. He came to the pastor's prayer meeting we had one time, and he said, you pastors are wasting your time. Why are you spending so much time preparing your sermons on Sunday mornings? Says, All the Bible studies have been done. Just go online and download one so that you can come and spend more time at my food bank. That is a terrible, terrible way to go about that. We are called to rightly divide the word of truth. Oh, he wasn't joking. He was dead serious, by the way. He uh, was not very popular after a while. He sort of wore out his welcome, as you can imagine. But we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul says, let all see your progress as you study. That Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. Ezra, who had set his heart to understand and be able to teach and obey the word. That's the example. And to open up the Bible and just get, get a few nice points would be easy. But you've got to rip it apart and find out what it means and find out how to present it and connect it with other parts of scripture and make sure that you're not just going off in a weird zone, but read other godly men. It's a process. Also, loving people in the church and having pastoral care meetings and phone calls and conversations, that's time-consuming. That takes time. That's one of the things that is hard for me because I, I'd never want to turn somebody down when they want to see me or talk to me about something. But over time, that starts to pile up, and now I'm not having time to study anymore, and now other things come in, and it's a time management issue. Administration and maintenance cannot wait. If the toilet's leaking, I can't just say, well, I get off in five minutes, so I'll fix it next week. It's got to be done. Organizing outreaches, organizing events, the list goes on to serve and lead the church well. And Paul's message is that those who work hard in the church for the sake of the body are worthy of your respect. It is so hard 
when a man puts his heart and soul into the work of the church and is laboring to maybe prepare an event or to get a sermon ready, and then all people can do is show up and pick at it. Here's all the things you did it wrong. Here's all the ways that I would have done it. Uh, you know, it's really not right that you did it this way. I wouldn't have said it like that. Well, have you seen this guy online that I found? He says it way better than you said it. He says you're to respect them. Not, you're not come in with demands and insults. Because we are to labor in the church. And third, we are to respect those who admonish you. No one likes to be admonished, but it's necessary. This is the Greek word, nutheteo. It means to instruct, but with a corrective element. It's not quite as strong as a rebuke. A rebuke is, stop doing that. An admonishment is a little softer, but it's like, listen, you can't be doing that, and here's why. It's correction. Part of the difficulty of having a leader over you is learning to take correction. Whether that's moral correction, you, you can't be doing that. You, you cannot be speaking that way or treating people that way or going that place. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's you're not doing anything necessarily wrong, but the way you're acting is making these people crazy and we're a family and you've got to get that under control. Sometimes it's ministerial instruction. It's like, you're doing this ministry, and I appreciate it. I need you to do it this way instead. There are some folks that get their little pet ministry. Don't you dare touch it. I don't care if you're the pastor. I don't care if you're an elder. I don't care who you are. This is my thing. I'm going to do it my way. And it's hard to take instruction. Or doctrinal instruction. Paul talked about those who would heap up teachers to scratch their itching ears and not want to listen to the truth. It's hard to take correction. And what I have found is it can be hard too. When somebody comes into a church and is much older than their pastor or much more financially successful than their pastor, it's difficult sometimes. Like, this, this guy going to come and tell me something? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know what I've accomplished? Doesn't he know where I've been? I was his age. He wasn't even thought of yet. It's hard. But God has put authority in place so that people can be admonished. The shepherd needs to keep his sheep where they need to be. And the word pastor means shepherd. It's related to that word pasture, right? The number one thing that keeps people out of ministry or drives people out of ministry is people who refuse to be admonished and make the pastor's life miserable. I had, I had a lot of Bible college professors that were failed pastors, and they had that cynical underlay to their whole attitude because they had been in school. They had gotten straight A's. They had all their doctrine lined up and out they go and they get smacked in the face by somebody who doesn't care if they went to school or not. And they're not able to handle that so they go back to, back to college. That's not all of them, but some of them for sure. And so then they come in and they develop this disdain for the church because those people don't know what they're talking about. They don't know a good thing when it comes to them. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul had to tell Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Don't let them despise you for your youth. This is the difficulty of being a leader. Especially because most guys who become pastors, like myself, they love Jesus. They want to see people excited about Jesus. They get excited about studying the word. And then they've got people that are just mean to you sometimes. Like, hey man, you can't do that. That's not what the Bible says. And I, say, I don't care what the Bible says. You, what? You don't, you don't care what the Bible says? Listen, you've only, you're, you're 30 years old. You don't know how old I am. I'm not interested in you until you've lived as long as I have. Paul says, don't let them do that to you, Timothy. He says, you set them an example. You have an authority from the Lord God, and that is what you stand on, not their opinions of you. <laughs> Y'all know, I've been down here. We moved down here. I was 27. And... I still get, how old are you? You're the pastor of the church? How old are you? They wouldn't ask that question if they didn't think I was too young. I get those questions all the time. And I've had to learn just to handle that. And usually I say, well, how old do you think I am? <laughs> <laughs> I've learned just to laugh along with that because I realize that that's the way it is. And it's, it's difficult for some people. I get it. Especially for those, though, who want to assert their own way in the church. There's some people that they don't get their way at home, they don't get their way at work, they don't get their way anywhere else, but they want to come to church and hear, nah, this, this small little church, I can be the top of this ladder. We just got to get that pastor out of the way. It happens. But he says that we are to respect those who admonish us. Respect those who labor, who are over us, and who admonish us. But not only that, but in verse 13, he tells us to, this is the second thing, esteem them very highly. That word for esteem is egeomai. It means to deem or evaluate. And highly is beyond measure 
in Greek. Huperek perisu, really long word. Paul would make up these words. Huperek perisu. Because like you look at the, you go to the dictionary definition, and it's like this word plus this word plus this word. That's what this is. Very highly, beyond measure, abundantly esteem them, he says. Evaluate them as really, really high. So the first verb was about acknowledging their authority, but this instruction gives us the proper attitude of acknowledging authority. Not grudgingly, well, I guess he is the pastor after all, but with honor and esteem. I've already kind of referenced those, those cabals that can spring up in the church. We're like, we want to do this, and he says, you know, no, or not yet, or whatever it is. And so we just kind of start going around canvassing the crowd and getting a team together. And yeah, you know what? He doesn't really res- understand this anyway. And you know what? Really, it's our church, too. He's just, the, he's just the one that teaches. And then we come, and this is what we're going to do. And this, you, you can't stop it. It's tough. Back in the day, you had civil authority that would prevent you from doing that. I think it's better for us not to have that. But in the same way, it's tough when someone says, I'm going to do it this way whether you want me to or not. That is not esteeming highly the one that God has placed in authority. Acknowledging it, saying, yeah, he's a pastor, but I don't really think much of him. But if he wasn't the pastor, I wouldn't care anything about him. If he wasn't my home fellowship leader, if he wasn't an elder, I would never listen to a word he had to say. Well, it's a good thing that he is then because God put him there. Nowadays, it's very common. I say nowadays, it's always been this way. Come for the pastor or whoever to be treated like a hireling. You work for me, pal. Don't tell me what to do. You work for me. I'm the one that, that puts that check in that box every week. So if you want, want me to stick around, then you better start doing things my way. We have never had that issue here. I don't foresee that happening, but it does happen. It very much does happen. Some people treat the pastor like he's auditioning every week. Last week was good. You're good. It's like watching a reality show. You're safe for one more week. Oh, that was a really good sermon. You've got immunity for two weeks now. But I'm going to come in and we're going to see how he does. And all right, well, we've got this outreach coming up. So let's see how he does. And there are people that will make their pastor or their home fellowship leader or youth leader or whatever it is, their ministry team leader, feel like they're always on the bubble. And that, that stress and that anxiety causes people either to get really mean and like assert themselves, which isn't good, or just to leave. Forget it, I'm not sticking around for this. That's not right. We are to be on our leader's team. He says, esteem them very highly in what? In love. You ought to love the leaders that God has placed over you. You're commanded to do that. To esteem them very highly in love. Especially if you've been serving in a ministry for a long time, or at a church for a long time. You should be on your leader's team. It's important. We, we should be the cheerleaders and the offensive line for our pastor. That sometimes we're like, hey, I realize this is a tough job. I realize not everybody is treating you very well, but you know what? I love you. I'm with you. Let's keep going. I need that. We all need that. Your ministry team leaders need that, whether you're on the worship team or you're in the sound or you're doing kids or whatever. We don't have these little pockets of, oh, I don't know. Let's see about that. Uh, maybe I can come on time. Maybe I can climb to the top of this ladder. We come together, and if we're esteeming the leadership highly and championing one another, then it will be much better, won't it? Because people that are going to come around and cause division, they're not going to find anywhere to do that here. Now, obviously, some of that respect has to be won in battle, right? <laughs> like, I've got to see that you can lead. I want to see that you can teach. I want to see that you can admonish. But he's telling us here how a pastor should be thought of, not just treated. In 1 Timothy 5, he puts it this way. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Double honor. Double honor. Now that that verse itself is talking about financial compensation. Paul's like, you let your ox eat the grain as it's treading it out. You don't think that your pastor or your leaders or teachers are worthy to be compensated for the work that they do? And he says, don't let anybody bring a charge against an elder except you got two or three witnesses. Somebody comes up and says, well, he said this and I saw him doing that. Okay, well, did anybody else see that? Well, no, it was just me. Okay, then I'm not going to listen to this then. But you have to listen. No, I don't. In fact, the Bible says I shouldn't listen unless you have two or three witnesses. And I would add to that two or three credible witnesses. (laughs) If it's folks, you know, who are always making trouble and they're always looking for something and they're, if, when they're done with this guy, they're going to move on to this guy, 
then don't admit accusations. I think it's unfortunate even the way we handle ourselves online with public figures. Somebody who has walked with the Lord faithfully and taught well and, and led people to Jesus and somebody comes up with an accusation and immediately the church piles on. It's like, hold on, we don't do that. We wait. We, we give each other the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things and believes all things, right? Double honor. That should characterize our dealings with church leaders. Why? He says, because of their work. Remember what your pastor is doing for you, preaching and dreaming for the church and comforting those that need it and correcting those who need to be corrected. I guarantee you, if you are not called to ministry, you do not want to be in ministry. If you, if you are not called to be a pastor, you don't want to be a pastor. Charles Spurgeon said, if a man comes to me and wants to be a full-time pastor, a full-time minister, I tell him, if he can do anything else and be happy, he should go do it. God has picked a few men to do this. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, because you'll receive a stricter judgment. So, yeah, you might think, I'm going I'm to have to give an account for you on judgment day, but I'm going to have a stricter judgment than you. Consider that. You are going to have it easier on judgment day than me. You might think to yourself, then why in the world would you sign up for that job? Because the Lord puts a call on people's lives and there's nothing else you can do. That's why those who are over us deserve respect, esteem, and love. Now, this is awkward for me to talk about because I'm talking about myself. <laughs> but it's the Bible. It's the Bible. The Lord knew we needed structure and leadership in the church. And I, for one, agree with him. There was a trend a few years ago, and it might still be going on, but I haven't heard much about it lately, called micro-churches. We had mega-churches, as big as we can get. We're going to do micro-churches, as small as possible. Like home fellowship size, maybe five or six people. No leadership, no authority. We're just going to get together and talk and pray, and that'll be great. Sounded really nice, but all my friends I knew that got into that. They turned into these squabbling little families of churches that got together and you had all kinds of weird personality issues going on because there's no structure. There's no leadership. There's no final authority of who says what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. That was the danger of that, among other things. But I think that the Lord knew what he was doing when he put structure and leadership in the church. You may have to rethink, after reading some of these verses, how you understand your role or my role. Maybe you grew up a certain way and that's the way you did it, and you read these verses, and it doesn't sound like the way you were raised. Well, which one's wrong? The way you were raised or what the Word says? Come back to what the Word says. Not tradition, not preference. We don't want our culture to sneak its way and into the way we do things to the point of excluding the Word of God. The final thing Paul mentions here in verse 13, and I think if you want to know how to love your pastor well, you do what he says at the end of verse 13, where he says, be at peace among yourselves. When the church is at peace, pastor's job is very easy. When the church is squabbling and fighting, it's not so easy. So one of the best things you can do is to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. And that leads us right into verses 14 and 15, so let's read them. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So new sentence now opening with, we urge you, brothers. It's parallel to what we saw in verse 12 where he said, we ask you, brothers. We'll have another new thought in verse 15. Now the question here is whether verse 14 is addressed to the church at large or to the leaders that Paul just described. Because you can see the word admonish used here. He says, those who admonish among you. And then he immediately goes into an instruction to admonish the idol. I think that's possible. I think it certainly applies to leadership. And it could be that we have another little verse here about how to be a good leader in the church. But I also think that even if that's true, it applies to us as a whole. So that's how we're going to read it today. Especially since verse 13 talked about being at peace with one another. And we urge you. So it seems to be carrying on that same general idea. It's not just intended for leaders here. And he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. The church is to be a lot of things. It's to be a hospital for those who are lost 
that are spiritually broken. It's supposed to be a schoolroom where we learn sound doctrine. It's supposed to be a temple where we come in and we worship and we celebrate what God has done. But it's also a fraternity where we come together to build each other up, to keep each other strong, not just to hear these things, but to be there to keep each other accountable and walk together towards that goal. So these things that we're reading are to be done by leaders, but they're really things that we all should do. We're supposed to be a village, remember, for one another. This is how the village is supposed to act. And verse 14 has four imperatives, four commands. So let's break those down. First, he says, we are to admonish the idol. We just saw that word. Admonish means to instruct with correction. And we are to do that for, it says, the idol. The word for idol is ataktos. It's actually means disorderly, or it means out of rank. It, it could be a military term to describe a, an insubordinate soldier, which makes the ESV maybe an odd translation at first blush. But it's also how the King James and the New King James and the New Living and NIV translate it. The New American Standard and a few others that are more literal translations have disorderly. I like how the New English translation puts it here. They have the word undisciplined. I think that's good because it covers both aspects of this term. To be undisciplined means to be you're idle and you're lazy, but it also means that nobody tells you what to do and you're disorderly. Idleness leads to being disorderly, so it all comes together. That's what a taktos means. So to be idle here is to be undisciplined in the things of God. Now, you might think when you hear that, to be idle spiritually. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just not really progressing myself. That's not how it works, though, is it? When somebody is idle and undisciplined spiritually... It doesn't lead to inactivity. It leads to unruly and disruptive behavior. Paul gave an example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. He's talking about bringing widows into the church to be supported by the gifts of the church. Okay? That's the context of this passage. But he says in verse 11, Refuse to enroll younger widows. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation on having abandoned their former faith. So he's saying if you bring in a, a woman who is too young and start supporting her as a widow in the church, if she's young, she might still want to go out and be married again. She's not going to find a husband in the church, so it's very likely she's going to go elsewhere to find a husband and even abandon the faith. So that's the first caution. But he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. He's saying, when you have these, in this context, women, who are young enough to still get married and live a vibrant life, but they're just now being supported by the church and they've got nothing else going on, he says, they're going to find something to do. And it's not going to be productive. So they've got nothing better to do than go around from house to house and start gossiping and meddling in other people's lives. You ever met somebody like this? It's unfortunate that I've found people who are on some kind of disability or have some other reason why they can't work or they can't be in living a normal life, that this can happen. Since there's nothing going on for me, what am I going to start doing? I'm going to start picking on everybody else and see what's going on in everybody else's life and start taking slights very seriously because not a lot going on for me. Idleness leads to being unruly, so undisciplined. Paul makes the same point in 2 Thessalonians, that those who are not active in their faith become disruptive and destructive. People who have nothing going on for themselves will look for other people to fix. Sometimes this is, I've got some very serious problems that I just can't get over. So I'm just going to leave those alone and go find somebody else and start working on them. That's not good. That's idleness because you are not taking care of your own house. But you're going to try to fix other people. This happens sometimes when people say, you know what, I've been serving in the church a long time. I've been going to church every weekend and week out. And you know what, it's time for me to take some time for myself. And you take time for yourself, and you get obsessed with yourself, and you become undisciplined spiritually, and you start making trouble for yourself. It can lead to disruption in the church. Well, you know, now that I'm not here every week, and I'm spending more time on Facebook, and I'm spending more time watching YouTube videos, and more time talking to my friends that also don't go to church, I've discovered a lot of problems with this church, Pastor. It happens. He says our job is to admonish those who are idle, those who are undisciplined in their faith. You, as a Christian, are to be busy about your father's business, just like Jesus was. To be at work in the church and out of the church. That you're doing what God has called you to do. You're not an idle person, and you're not an undisciplined person. 
This is why things like, well, I'm just greeting people at the door isn't that big a deal. Yeah, but there's something different about coming to church with the, the thought that I've got to serve other people. I've got a job to do. I've got something to do for someone else. That changes your entire mindset when you walk in that door and applies to everything else going on here too. Admonish the idol. If you do not do that, you're going to turn inward and lose your way. You're not just at the church to take in. You're here to give back. Blessed to be a blessing. You heard that one before? And Paul tells us the church is to self-police this, that when we see each other going that way, we step in and say, hey, you're, you're kind of getting undisciplined here. You got to get back. You want to help us out? You want to serve? What do you want to do? Let's pray together. Let's get together and find something productive to do rather than just sitting around doing nothing. Right? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Not in the Bible, but the idea is in the Bible, isn't it? That's the first thing the church ought to do. Admonish the idol. Not just me, you guys. One another. Admonish one another. Secondly, he tells us to encourage the faint-hearted. And you could add the third thing right in there. It's very close to it. Help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Emotional and spiritual shortcomings. To encourage and to help them. Every one of you is going to have a day where you come into the church and you're faint-hearted. Every one of you is going to have a day when you're weak, even if you're strong almost all the time. The church is to be a place where we find support and love in those moments. That I was faint-hearted, but I walked into the church and there were people there to encourage me. That I was spiritually weak and I was about to fall, but there were people that came around me and helped me. That's what the church is to be. It's a family. It's that village, right? And every situation is different. And every person is different. So there's no one right way to handle each faint-hearted person or each weak person. We've got to know each other well enough and be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to know what they need. To encourage the faint-hearted. To help the weak. Sometimes that's a hug. Sometimes, hey, you know what? It's okay. I'm right here. I love you. Sometimes it's a sharp word. Sometimes it's exactly what we need. I, I know for a fact there have been times where I was down and I was faint-hearted and I was feeling really miserable and somebody, usually my father or somebody like that, an authority over me, steps in and just lays it on the line real sharp. And at first you kind of get... I'm sad. Doesn't he know that that's not what I need right now? And then you walk away and you go, no, he's, he's right. That's exactly what I needed. We're to know each other that well. We're to know the spirit that well. And we also have different kinds of folks in the church. Some of y'all are immediately going to resort to the hug every single time. We love you guys. We need you so much. Some of y'all need to be careful because you resort to the sharp word every single time. But you know what? We love people like that too. When you have someone in your life that is just going to always lay it on the line and tell you what it is, we need people like that. We could broaden this out, not just being faint-hearted, not just being weak, but we are to help one another obey every aspect of the word. That The church is there to be that, that team, to live the reality of what we know to be true in Christ. Hebrews 12 says, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The Lord tells us, hey, sometimes life's going to knock you around. Sometimes it's the discipline of the Lord. Don't let it beat you down. Get up and keep going. Let it make you stronger rather than cripple you. And the church is there to help each other with that. Because when you're in the, in the depths of all that stuff, it's very hard to do that yourself. But when you have developed ahead of time a family of people around you that know you real well and can tell when you're off and know exactly what you need to do, then it helps you to do those things, to strengthen the weak knees and lift your drooping hands. It's really unfortunate that as we, as the world, have become increasingly psychologized, we've begun to cast aspersions on the church's ability to heal and to help one another. I went to a, an event at the hospital one time. I used to go and visit the teenagers especially who were going to the psych ward and were having suicidal thoughts and that kind of thing. I was there all the time. So they invited me and some of the other guys to come. They were going to have a seminar, kind of a training thing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And the person that was there spent the first few minutes explaining that just because you're a pastor or a religious person does not mean that you are qualified to talk to somebody who is depressed or anxious or suicidal and that if you don't have formal training, you really shouldn't be here. Well, the thing is, the ironic thing is that we were at Virginia Baptist Hospital and everybody there was a pastor of some kind, but maybe they didn't know that. I don't know. But that's the attitude we see. Well, you're not trained. You don't have your degrees. You're not, you're not formally prepared to handle You don't understand the, the depths of Freud and Jung and all those other guys. So how can you possibly help me? 
Now listen, there are some people that have very serious issues that need professional help. That's, that's true. But I would say most people, I, I might even say almost everyone, are going to be helped by what the church provides. And when you come into God's house, whatever you're going to get somewhere else, you're going to get here. It just might not be very formal and have letters after its name. We have what the Bible calls the balm of Gilead, the real truth. We ought to meet one another in our discouragements and shortcomings and take the time to help each other. You are a brother and a sister in Christ. Can I tell you just now, you are qualified to help those who come in here broken. Because God is with you. And he loves that person so much. You have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. Think about the disciples, who these guys were that Jesus used. Peter was a fisherman. He was not a very sensitive individual, was he? Actually, none of them really were when you think about it. You had a tax collector, a rebel against his own kind. You had the zealot. You had the sons of thunder. Remember those guys? How'd you like to have a pastor whose nickname when he was growing up was called the son of thunder? How'd you get that name? Well, I, I wanted to call down fire from heaven on some people that wouldn't give me a hotel room one time. The Lord's like, you know what? You should write some Bible books. Because the Lord empowered those people to do his work. And when we come together in the church, we can psych ourselves out where we're like, well, I, I need a professional. I need somebody that does this all the time. You know what? When God fills his people with his spirit, the Lord is able to do exactly what is needed in people's lives. Because you don't know, but God does. You know Jesus Christ. When someone comes to you and they've got some real serious issue going on, don't panic like you don't know what to say because you haven't been to school. You know Jesus. Share the word. Bring the gospel back to their attention. Read the scriptures to them. Well, that, that just seems so bland and so fake. That is the devil speaking. That is not the Lord. The Lord has given you the word of God, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts to the division of soul and spirit and bone and marrow. What does that mean? It means it's a scalpel that cuts you open, looks at exactly what you need, and has the remedy for what you're going through. Amen. Now, there's a difference between knowing the remedy and living it out. Sometimes that's a problem. We come in and say, here's my issue. We lay it out on the table, and, and someone says, this is the problem. You've got to start doing that. Well, I don't want to start doing that. I can't help you then. Jesus told people like that a few times, didn't he? He said, this is what you got to do. Sell everything that you have and come follow me. Well, I'm not doing that. Well, then you can't be my disciple then. That's the difficulty most of the time is not knowing what we need to do, but having the strength to do it. And that's why you have the church around you. You come here with other people. Well, they don't, I, I, I came to church and nobody asked me how my thing was going. Well, there are other people there too. And, and, and so many times we get so obsessed with our problems, we come to church and we want other people to be obsessed with our problems, when in reality we ought to be comforted by the fact that these people aren't worried about that. Maybe I don't need to be so worried about it either. And it doesn't mean you don't love each other and care for one another, but it helps us remember this is not the only thing that's true. My pain, my struggle, my anxiety, whatever, is not the only thing that's true. And look at these people around me. And then you start helping other people and loving them. And then that takes your eyes off of yourselves and back onto Jesus. And you start loving them. And all of a sudden you realize you left that far behind. And you don't know where you left it, but you just know that you did. Don't be selfish when you walk through those doors. Amen. You need to look around and see who needs to be loved today. Who needs to be prayed for today? Who needs a smile? Who needs a handshake? Who needs me to sit and talk with them for a few minutes? Because sometimes... Most of the time, we don't need a big, long counseling session. We just need somebody to put their arm around us and say, hey, how you doing? Spend a few minutes and saying hello. I can live off a compliment for like six months. <laughs> Someone comes in and says something really ni nice to me. I'm like, wow, why would they say something like that? That's a, wow, they must really love me. That's what we're supposed to be for one another. We're supposed to get that here. Amen? Even and especially when you don't feel like it, by the way. Well, I just don't really feel like loving anybody today. That's the day you need to start loving some folks. And the fourth thing, be patient with them all. This is needed in the ministry and in the church, let me tell you. Because sometimes folks will come in with a mess that they took decades to make. And we can get frustrated when my words that essentially amount to snap out of it don't fix it right away. It takes a long time to make the mess. Very often it's going to take a long time to clean up that mess. You've got habits that have got to be broken. You've got trains of thought that have got to change. 
You've got relationships that you've got to break off. You've got new relationships that you've got to forge. You've got to say, okay, I believe what the word says, but I've got to learn what the word says and let it soak into my soul and in my heart. You've got to be patient with people. And you know what? A lot of times people don't want to be helped. <laughs> they come in and they want you to commiserate with them. They want you to, you know, cry with them and, and be there with them, but they don't want anything to change. And then you've got to be patient with that person as you love them well and you care for them, but you keep reminding them, this is not a good place for you to stay. We've got to move past this. I don't see why you're always trying to tell me what to do and fix my problems. Just listen to me. Listen, do both of those things. It's like in Numbers chapter 20. Not going to read it for time, but the children of Israel wanted water and were ready to kill Moses and Aaron again. They had been miraculously provided bread. It, it snowed bread every morning. God had sent them so many quail, they didn't want it anymore. He had provided water from the rock. He'd parted the Red Sea in 10 plagues. And they said, there's no water. We're going to die. Let's kill Moses. Moses was frustrated. There's God, these people. And God says, go speak to the rock, Moses. I'll speak to the rock. I'll speak to the rock, all right? And he whacked it twice. You rebels. I love that. Here now, you rebels. Do I have to provide water for you out of this rock again? And he struck the rock twice. And God said, Moses, I didn't tell you to do that. You did not uphold me as holy before the people. You let your temper and impatience get in the way. <laughs> we say, well, Moses had every right to be frustrated, except that God was patient. And Moses was God's representative. And the same is true of you. Are you representing Christ to the people in this church? Are you being patient with them all? Now, there are some folks who will dominate your time. They'll drive you to distraction. They'll, they'll become no longer being helped. They're just there to, to be a drain on you. Now, sometimes folks like that need to be cut loose, and that's the best thing for them. But your default position is patience. All these things, correction, encouragement, help, patient, love. That's where the church, the church is where we're supposed to get all that stuff. See, I want to be encouraged. I need to be corrected. I want to be loved and helped. The church is where we get that. And the world knows that we need those things and is always trying to recreate it somewhere else. But we're a family. We're a village in that way. Where do you go? When you need these things, let me ask you, why would you go to the world to get your most important emotional and spiritual needs met? The world will say, oh, I see your problem. Here's the issue. Don't let them tell you. They don't know God. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the truth. Let the Lord tell you. That's God's solution. And you are part of the solution too. And when people come in, you are who God is using to bring them through what they're going through. And we end with that last command in verse 15. Where he said, say that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So outside the church too. Let me just tell you. The church is full of people. They all have personalities and they all have opinions. You are going to disagree and clash with some of them. Just accept that. All right? That, that is going to happen. You can just write that off. That one of these days I'm going to have conflict here. Philippians chapter 4. Paul wrote, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These were these two women that were fighting, and Paul put it in the Bible that they needed to get along. I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul's like, we've served together, we're both saved, we're all going to heaven, can't we just get along? He says, your disagreement is an opportunity to demonstrate the selfless love of Jesus. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, throw off the gloves and get in their face because it's time to go, right? <laughs> Let him hit the other one too. Someone wants to sue you and take your tunic. Say, fine, take my jacket too. He taught us how to endure suffering on the cross. So the world's rules don't apply here. We're working for a common goal. We have a common savior and a common destination. So we've got to learn to get along with one another. Now, there may be some folks you don't get along with as well as others. That's fine. No one says you have to be best friends with everyone here. As long as you don't do this, as long as you don't work your way through everybody in the church, and it turns out that they're all crazy. That's the common denominator is you, isn't it? Maybe there are people that will burn through churches that way. They, they go to church after church, and they cause trouble, and they make a big mess, and they never once consider the fact that it might be me. This is true to everyone. We are not to return evil for evil, but to love each other. Don't try to push each other around. Don't try to manipulate each other, but help each other. So in this passage, we have instructions to treat our leaders well, lessons for how to treat one another well, 
The church is your one-stop shop for love and help and community during your sojourn on this earth. And I think in this year, we've learned the importance and the necessity of the church, haven't we? All of a sudden, when you can't have it, you realized how much you needed it. And I'm, I wouldn't come down on anybody that is dealing with some kind of medical thing or is still worried about stuff. That not, that's not what this is about. I just think we can say when this is all over, I hope we will have a much greater appreciation for what the church is and what God has given us in the body of Christ. Can we agree on that? I urge you to let yourself be a part of this place. Let these things happen for you. We don't look to the world to give us what God's already given us and then turn around and criticize the church for not doing it the world's way. Well, you don't understand. There's all these new discoveries being made. It's like, yeah, they're rediscovering what Jesus has already told us. You are God's village on the earth. This is a precursor of the kingdom. We're learning and we're growing together so that we can be more and more like Jesus before he comes and takes us home.